0: It's no secret that John MacArthur can be controversial. If some unbiblical, dangerous doctrine is deceiving millions of people, John is not afraid to say something. Hold it, that's error, that's heresy, that's not true. And from time to time, John has spoken publicly against entire movements that misrepresent the truth.
1: You need to understand that none of that is biblical. None of that comes out of the Bible. None of that is remotely related to the Bible.
0: Of course, when John does this, he's often accused of being divisive. People will say things like, Don't
1: be dogmatic, be loving. Don't be divisive.
0: Now don't misunderstand. MacArthur is not a grouch. He's actually one of the most kind, loving, gentle people you would ever meet. Ask the members at Grace Community Church. When he practices the spiritual discipline of discernment, he's not trying to pick fights or be divisive. He's simply being who or what God has called him to be. In this episode, we're going to look at a unique paradigm of spiritual leadership that I think gives us a great way to think about the kind of ministry God has had for MacArthur. So instead of shepherd, the common analogy for pastors, I want you to consider another paradigm,
2: the sheepdog. An excursion in the Alps, suddenly interrupted by a loose and apparently aggressive dog. When they try to pass by, it reacts even more aggressively. The reason? This dog protects a flock of sheep. It's a livestock guardian
0: dog. That fascinating clip is from a film that coaches hikers about to set out on an excursion through the Swiss Alps. Often, those hikers will stumble across a flock of sheep, grazing far away from civilization. The shepherd is away, but he has left these guardian dogs in charge. They are highly trained by the shepherd
2: to protect the flock. The livestock guardian dog is an integral member of the flock. Its job is to fend off natural predators. I first thought of MacArthur as a sheepdog
0: when reading The Care of Souls by Harold Sinkbile. Chapter 5 of the book is titled Sheepdogging and Shepherd. In it, Sinkbile says this The sheepdog is iconic of a faithful pastor's work. One ear tuned to the voice of the great shepherd. The other tuned attentively to the sheep. What enthralls me about this picture of a dog in the service of his master are three things. First, the dog can't possibly know or even begin to grasp the whole of the shepherd's intent. Second, he's not self-assertive, but only and entirely serves as an extension of the shepherd's heart and directive will he is an agent of another mind at the willing and eager disposal of the shepherd doing his bidding and finding great delight in the process he can afford to take his time confident and assertive but never aggressive finally despite the frustration caused by the sheep the dog's tail is always wagging because he's completely captivated by his love for the shepherd. Now, dear listeners, I know this analogy is not in the Bible, but I think it helps us understand a
2: key tool the Chief Shepherd uses to protect the flock. The livestock guardian dog cannot be chased away. It defends its flock as long as it feels danger. On this episode, we're going to look at the
0: preacher, as sheepdog. And we're going to tell a story about a time when John MacArthur was compelled to protect the flock that God had entrusted to him. My name is Austin Duncan. I'm the director of the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching at the Master Seminary. This is the podcast from the center, and this is season one, The Expositor, the life and preaching of John MacArthur. Perhaps the first time John saw a threat to the flock and publicly took on the role of Sheepdog was in 1978, nine years after he came to Grace Community Church. That year, Zondervan published John's book, The Charismatics.
3: The first really great John MacArthur book I ever read was called The Charismatics. Please
0: welcome Phil Johnson back to the podcast
3: and it was a it was a adaptation of his teaching through he was teaching through first corinthians and he did a series through first corinthians 12 and 14 uh but on the side he did a series critiquing charismatic doctrine and when i read that book that's that's one of the things that first uh got me excited about john and his teaching we had never met i'd heard him speak once Uh, I thought he was the best preacher I'd ever heard. But when I read that book, I thought, really, he needs to be writing more and saying more. And he had the courage to deal with an issue that, by then even, this was in the 1970s, people were shying away from dealing with it because the popularity of the charismatic movement was growing exponentially, and nobody wanted to be on the wrong side of evangelical history.
0: Nine years after that, John's book, The Gospel According to Jesus, took the evangelical world by storm. It's easily the best-selling book John has ever published.
1: The Gospel According to Jesus, which was a defense of true salvation, is that you not only believe Jesus is who he claimed to be, but you acknowledge him as Lord. The lordship issue. That led into the whole controversy of lordship in multiple books after that.
0: Those books were called The Gospel According to the Apostles, the gospel according to Paul, and the gospel according to God. And there was a book called Hard to Believe. All four had the same goal, to clearly define the gospel. And each was a response to a dangerous, unbiblical view of the gospel that was harming people, drawing them away from a pure devotion to Christ. Alongside those books and many sermons, John continued to voice his concern over the Charismatic issue. In that movement's emphasis on prophecy, the baptism of the Spirit, and the gift of tongues, they were opening the door to continuing revelation. They were saying scripture was not sufficient, and the excesses of this movement were causing all kinds of spiritual harm. So, with the Lordship issue and the charismatic controversy, John saw attacks against the gospel, the good news of salvation, and scripture, the perfect complete revelation of God. And as a sheepdog, he defends the chief shepherd's flock. And that aspect of his ministry was perhaps most on display in 2013, when John and Grace to You hosted a conference on the campus of Grace Community Church.
3: Every other year or thereabout, Grace to You has a conference. Uh, we call the series Truth Matters, and each conference has had a theme and that particular year the uh the release of john's book strange fire coincided with the timing of the conference and so we said let's make the conference about the charismatic movement let's introduce the book get a bunch of speakers who are willing to speak candidly about the charismatic issue and so that was the theme of the conference and it turned out to be uh I think the most talked about and well-attended of all the conferences we've ever had, because that's such a big issue. Charismatic doctrine, you know, even in non-charismatic churches, is rarely critiqued. And uh, here we were going to critique it, and lots of people wanted to hear that. Strange
0: Fire is a reference to Leviticus chapter 10, where the priests Nadab and Abihu did not approach God the way he had prescribed. The scripture says this, They offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. You see, it's a passage that reminds us that worship done the wrong way can be very dangerous. We're addressing a subject
1: in the conference this week, the subject of the contemporary charismatic movement under the title of Strange Fire. And this has been a concern to me for many, many years, a concern for many, many decades. You can go all the way back to the very early years of my ministry when I began ministry and saw the early beginnings of this movement and was deeply, deeply concerned. Through the years, I have addressed this from this pulpit. Forty years ago, a series on the charismatic movement, on the issues that were at hand in the movement, a book, The Charismatics, uh, some years followed, another book, Charismatic Chaos. More series, more attention given to that to try to help our people
0: to exercise discernment. This was the first time in John's ministry that he'd hosted a conference that was entirely polemical. It was a culmination of more than 40 years of defending the gospel and the authority of Scripture. Obviously, the event was controversial. And halfway through the conference, there was a bit of a ruckus on the church campus.
4: I'm the security director at Grace Community Church, and I had a uh, security detail uh, deployed for the
0: event. That's Tom Hatter. He's a faithful member of our church, and he's an ex-cop. He even looks like an ex-cop. He has one of those ex-cop mustaches. And Tom is a sweetheart. But if you mess around, he'll tase you.
4: Around mid-morning, I was alerted and um, I alerted my team that we were expecting a visit from uh, Mark Driscoll at the Strange Fire Conference. So we were all kind of on guard and watching out. And uh, for me personally, I had no clue or idea who Mark Driscoll was.
0: The fact that Tom Hatter didn't know who Mark Driscoll was would probably bother Mark Driscoll.
4: I didn't know the man, I didn't know anything about his, uh, his ministry. Um, I was telling
0: myself, okay, we'll watch out for Mark Driscoll. The alert actually came from Mark Driscoll himself. That morning he announced to his Twitter followers the following tweet. Hey, hashtag strangefirefriends, see you in one hour. I'll have free copies of my new book. The chapters on tribalism and Holy Spirit may be helpful. He was in town to co-host a men's conference with James McDonald down in Long Beach. The conference was called, ironically, Act Like Men. And Driscoll drove an hour at least out of his way up north to crash the strange fire conference you can't make this up
4: it was uh, maybe an hour after we got this alert that one of my guys said hey Driscoll's here he's pulling in so we uh, were monitoring him he came around to the east side of the seminary where there was a table set up and he brought uh a box of his, uh, his books. James McDonald um, was also part of that little group of, of men that, that showed up. And uh, McDonald was driving like a red Mustang and he, he uh, backed in uh, over on the uh, south side of the church property, the, the main parking lot, and he was sitting in his, his Mustang. And Mark was, was uh, over by
0: the seminary Mark Driscoll and his mini escapades are currently the hot topic at the evangelical watering
5: hole.
0: But in case you, like Tom Hatter, don't know much about Driscoll, For
1: the of
0: or his sidekick that day, James McDonald, who I prefer referring to as pseudo James, let me fill you in. Both were church planters. James in Chicago, Mark in Seattle. Mark became mildly famous when an author named Donald Miller called him Mark the Cussing Pastor in Miller's self-obsessed memoir, Blue Like Jazz. James became well-known when his church exploded in size and he founded a church planting network. Both kind of became reformed. Both had influence, especially among the young, restless, and reformed camps. In the mid-2000s, Mark's panache for the crude and off-color became more frequent in his sermons. That, along with the accusations of verbal abuse and domineering leadership, would lead to him resigning from his church in 2015. pseudo JMac had to leave his church as well because of financial shenanigans and other unpastoral behavior. Today, Mark is still a pastor, only now it's in the desert of Arizona not in the rainy mist of Seattle. James is still on the internet uh, yelling at people. Now we're all cut up. Back to that Thursday morning in 2013.
4: And he was engaging with uh, the attendees for the Strange Fire Conference, and he was giving uh, the folks uh, his book. Um, And there was kind of a line, and most of them were, were our seminary students. And uh, Mark was not an invited guest. He had not paid a registration fee, uh, which, which was kind of required of those who were in attendance at this, this conference.
0: After 30 or so minutes of Mark chatting with TMS students, Tom approaches the situation.
4: Again, I, I, don't, I don't know this guy. But we had a very cordial interaction, and he made some remark about uh, wearing my suit, and it was hot out, and must be uncomfortable. And I just told him, "Well, that you know, this is what I do." And I don't recall all of the particulars of that conversation, but the bottom line was he didn't want him passing out any more books to the to the uh, the men that were attending the conference, and um, so the conversation turned to. Mark informing us that, well, here I, I, I'm going to give you the books. They're, they're a gift to a gift to Grace Community Church. They're a gift to to the conference, and uh, you know, uh, you, you guys can have them. That was kind of the the gist of the conversation.
0: Look, I don't want to be like James McDonald and insert myself where I don't belong, but I was there that day. While Tom is talking to Driscoll. I walk over to the Mustang that James McDonald is sitting in. I tap on the window and he rolls it down and barely makes eye contact with me. And I said, James, is that James McDonald? And he says, yeah. I said, hey, we have mutual friends. And I named a few people we, we knew in common. And so he unlocks the door. I sit in the Mustang with him. And he says something about, I'm trying not to get noticed. And so I just sit and, and talked to him, and he was sullen and angry that the conference was happening. He explained to me that he felt MacArthur was being unnecessarily divisive. In his mind, we were dividing over secondary issues, and he just kind of sat in the car and growled and grumbled about it all. Meanwhile, back in the parking lot,
4: I reached out and shook Mark's hand and said, "Hey, it was a real pleasure to meet you." and uh, basically that was that was the end of the uh that interaction you know i mean the the interaction was pleasant uh it wasn't um, aggravated or hostile in any way it was a very pleasant interaction
0: the clown show had been on campus for about 45 minutes mcdonald sulking in his rental mustang Driscoll shaking hands, handing out signed copies of his book, and schmoozing the seminarians. I asked Mark to sign a copy of his book for me before he left campus, and was mostly looking for a historical artifact to chronicle this weird moment in modern church history. I also took out my cell phone to take a picture of the party crashers, again, just out of pure historical interest. At that moment, James McDonald had emerged from his Mustang, was standing next to Driscoll, and I held up my phone to take a pic of the two of them. McDonald grabs my phone out of my hand, lifts it above his head as if he's going to smash it on the ground in the parking lot. And as he begins to throw it down, he pauses, realizing there's a lot of people around, smiles widely and begrudgingly hands me back my phone. I look at my phone after they leave and I accidentally have this incredible picture of pseudo-J-Mac grabbing and Mark Driscoll grinning. I was able to capture this defining moment of self-promotion by these two wannabe usurpers. We parted cordially. I was glad they didn't smash my phone. I was more glad that they were gone. Not five minutes after they drove away, Mark Driscoll, lights twitter up again by tweeting security confiscated my books security did not
4: confiscate their books the 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 man used the word gift here i want you to have them uh again uh, we didn't want his books we had, had no interest in, uh, in taking possession of his books. But he insisted on leaving them.
0: There's video evidence that Tom Hatter is telling the truth. And Mark Driscoll is not. His blatant lie was broadcast to his 428, 428,247,000 Twitter followers. At the same time, everyone who watched this self-promotional dumpster fire unfold knew that Driscoll just lied. The Mustang, the book giveaway, the picture I snapped of Mark Driscoll signing a book for me and James McDonald about to steal my phone were all memorable. But what I remember most from that day was a moment in John MacArthur's office right before the shenanigans began conference director was there, a few other pastors from the church, some of the security guys. We were all talking about Driscoll and McDonald's pending arrival, and we didn't know what to make of it. MacArthur is sitting at his desk, working on his notes for his next sermon at the conference, and he does not care that Mark Driscoll is crashing the party. He was completely unflustered. He gives the famous MacArthur shrug and goes back to his notes. The man was completely above the fray. Now here is the question of this episode. Why were Mark Driscoll and James McDonald at the Strange Fire Conference? Why disrupt the event? The reason is simple. John MacArthur had publicly criticized Mark Driscoll. He had seen a threat to the flock, so he as a sheepdog of the chief shepherd had responded. A concern over tribalism was the theme of the book Driscoll was giving away at the conference. He was trying to forge a new, united path for evangelicalism with him at the helm. It was the substance of MacDonald's grumpy tirade in the Mustang. They didn't like it that MacArthur is a fighter, that he's a sheepdog, and that he called them out. And so they came in the most passive-aggressive way possible to argue with the sheepdog. But MacArthur didn't bite. It was years before the Strange Fire Conference when Driscoll was a darling of the Reformed Evangelical world. In the early years of the millennium, lots of people invited Driscoll to speak at their conferences, They endorsed his books. They recommended his sermons. Everybody was into Driscoll, except for John MacArthur. He saw reason for concern early on. So he wrote a letter to Driscoll. That's right, a letter, old-fashioned, on paper, in an envelope, with a stamp. Mac is old school like that. He was concerned enough to activate snail mail.
3: It was uh, 20, 2007 when John first wrote to Mark Driscoll. That was probably in October as well. Uh, describe that letter
0: for us, just a summary of that.
3: Letter? It was what I thought sounded like a fatherly and encouraging letter. It's probably four or five pages long, and the, the first three quarters or more are... Totally positive. Where John is saying, "I just heard this message that you did at Southeastern Theological Seminary, and and I want to encourage you because it was a good message. You did you did a great job defending. Uh, I think it was the doctrine of substitutionary atonement that he was defending, and um, so it was you know three quarters totally positive and encouraging. And then he said. But I also want to admonish you about you know, the language and imagery you use. You're not, you're not helping the gospel or adding to the power of the gospel. What followed
0: was a brief, fascinating exchange. Two letters from MacArthur and one from Driscoll, a little piece of church history. And to capture that history, we secured the talents of Paul Twist, professor of Bible exposition at the Master Seminary. He's going to read from the last page of John's first letter, dated September 26, 2007.
5: You are a gifted and clever communicator, Mark, but I'm convinced your ministry will be much more effective, not diminished in the least, when you are well known for cultivating qualities such as sobriety, reverence, and dignity in your lifestyle and language. I realize those are characteristics Paul associated with older men in Titus two two. But since you are functioning in an elder's role and have such a large and visible platform from which to influence men even younger than you, those are qualities I hope you will earnestly pursue. Furthermore, Paul's instruction for young men likewise summarizes perfectly my exhortation to you. Be sober-minded, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Titus 2:6-8. The strength of your ministry does not come from adapting to the fads of contemporary society, or from being familiar with the sins of our culture. Instead, it comes because you are boldly proclaiming God's word, and unashamedly confronting the fortresses of idolatry and error with His absolute truth. Your power is in your boldness with the truth. Your voice is an important one, Mark, and you wield more influence than you may realize. Our circles of influence overlap, and I personally know a number of young men in ministry who look to you as something of a pattern. It's vital that you not send one message about the importance of sound doctrine and a totally different message about the importance of sound speech and irreproachable pure-mindedness. May you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord." To please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, Colossians 1.10. For the master, John MacArthur.
0: You see, John's first concern with Mark's ministry was not his doctrine. For that, MacArthur commended him. It was his language. As an older, more experienced pastor, John called Mark to sound speech and irreproachable pure-mindedness. The tone of the letter was that of a gentle, concerned mentor. Six months later, Mark responded. He thanks John for his criticism and downplays their disagreements. He also says he is seeking to grow in the areas you listed as concerns because God has convicted me greatly on many areas of my personal need for maturing. In his third letter, John has a much briefer, more pointed response. Here again is Paul Twist from the archives.
5: My primary concern has always been about the level of sensuality and worldliness, evidenced in a lack of pastoral propriety and biblical decency, that characterizes much of your speech and methodology. It is a concern that arises from my observations of your public ministry and which has been heightened by some of your recent webcast sermons and messages. I didn't see anything in your letter that addresses this primary concern. In observing what you do openly and publicly, I am finding certain aspects of your ministry impossible to reconcile with the high standard of dignity and purity that the New Testament calls us to as ministers of the gospel. That is something that goes deeper than just differences of opinion or philosophy." Please don't feel like you need to explain anything further to me. Ultimately, we both must answer to the Lord.
0: John shared his concerns privately with Mark, but in the midst of their exchange, Driscoll makes a trip to Scotland and preaches a series of sermons from the Song of Solomon that was so scandalous, so wildly inappropriate, I cannot, I will not quote any of it on this podcast.
3: And that's what I think pushed John MacArthur over the edge to say, ah, look, I have to be outspoken about this. And so he wrote a series of, I think, four blog posts called The Rape of Solomon's Song. Uh, they were originally, I think, posted on the Pulpit blog, which doesn't exist anymore, but they, they still survive at the Grace TU blog. So people can still read them today. In fact, that was, as I recall, kind of how John said it: that the the poetry of Song of Solomon is like a modest dress to cover this these expressions that deal with, you know, marital love. Uh, And it was as if he tore that modest dress off and publicly exposed, you know, the seediest in the seediest kind of language. Uh, things that should not be publicly exposed.
0: So John begins writing a series of articles about those Song of Solomon sermons. He critiques Driscoll's grunge Christianity in another series of articles at Pulpit Magazine. Why do that? Why go public with his concerns? Aren't the private letters to Driscoll enough? A lot of people thought so. They accuse John of being old-fashioned, puritanical, divisive, harsh, and
6: unkind. I was saved in 2007, which in many ways was peak Mark Driscoll, and he's probably at the height of his popularity. That's Matt all
0: He's a graduate of the Master Seminary and teaches Latin at the school, so we should probably call him an alumnus. He was in college in the late 2000s when MacArthur was receiving far more criticism for his critique of Driscoll than Driscoll was for his language.
6: Everybody, all of my... Um, Friends at the time were sending me his video clips, sending me his YouTube clips saying, you've got to listen to this guy, he's um, changing everything, and something just wasn't right in my heart. His words aren't wrong, but the way he's saying it, something's really off in in his tone and in the way he's speaking uh, that set off the alarm bells I, I had not even been saved for a full year yet and as I was praying about it seeking the scriptures eventually I came across uh, some writings from uh, John MacArthur who at the time I didn't even know about but um, he just helped me to clearly see and understand what I was seeing and why it was wrong
0: back in 2007 and 2008 John did not critique Driscoll because they disagreed on secondary issues he believed the issue was the purity of the minister Shepherds represent their master, and when they are vile, they do not measure up to the high standard of God's standard bearers. For pastors, character is everything. According to 1 Timothy 3, it always trumps competency. A right view of sanctification was also at stake. When God saves you, He changes your speech. He empowers you to practice the fruit of the Spirit. Driscoll was threatening to lead a whole generation of young people, like Matt, away from a biblical view of sanctification, and he was lowering the standards of what God requires of his under-shepherds, and the sheepdog had to respond.
1: If you're a faithful pastor, your instinct is to protect. This is... This is what we do. We protect God's flock. You don't bash their heads in. You don't say, I couldn't care less what you think. You don't scream at them. You don't use profanity. You don't trample all over their consciences. You don't throw them under the bus. You don't tell them who they can marry and who they can't marry. You don't don't do that. You are by nature a shepherd. You protect the sheep. There is no way in the world that you could ever see these guys as protectors of their flock. They abuse their sheep. I did a message on sanctifying shepherds and I was speaking to that. shepherd is to be the the divine servant of the Lord for the sanctification of his people, not the
0: abuse. What John MacArthur just said about his instinct to protect... That kicked in long before Mark Driscoll became an internet sensation. It's what drove MacArthur to critique the charismatic movement in the first place, to host the Strange Fire Conference four decades later, to write book after book about the gospel. He is concerned about the flock of God, especially the flock entrusted to him at Grace Community Church. And it's that singular concern To obey the chief shepherd and protect the flock that makes John such an effective sheepdog.
3: What will never become irrelevant is the truth of the Word of God. It might be out of style, and Scripture recognizes that. You know, it's in season and out of season. We're supposed to stay faithful to the Word of God. And frankly, it's usually out of season, right? By the world's standards. But if you stay with the Word of God, preach the Word, that's what Paul told Timothy. And I think John has taken that to heart, and that has shaped John MacArthur's ministry for more than 50 years now. And he hasn't wavered from it. So he hasn't changed. And I think people recognize that. And some people look at that and say, well, he's going to be outdated because he won't change. But sensible people look at that and say... Because he hasn't changed, because he's been faithful, people are still going to be listening to his sermons and paying attention to what he has to say 150 years from now if the Lord doesn't return first. After we're all in the grave, John's voice, he being dead, will still speak. A couple of years ago, John
0: preached a sermon from the Epistle of Jude at the Master's Seminary Chapel. It was simply titled, Why I Fight... Listen as he explains why he is compelled to respond when the truth and the gospel are under attack.
1: Why do I fight? Well, I want to draw you to a passage of Scripture, Jude 3 and 4. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Why do I fight? Because I'm commanded to fight. I'm commanded in that passage to earnestly contend for the faith objective, the Christian faith as revealed in Holy Scripture, once for all handed down to the saints. That's a call to fight for the faith revealed in the Scripture. That's all it's about. It's not about personalities. It's, it's, it's not about Myself defending something that I believe or some territory that I supposedly have responsibility for. It's only about the truth, nothing but the truth.
0: MacArthur doesn't fight about everything. He only battles when the truth is at stake. The reformers understood this priority. Luther famously said, though we be active in the battle, if we are not fighting where the battle is the hottest, We are traitors to the cause. And as John Calvin said in his Institutes, even a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked, yet would remain silent. Before we wrap this episode up, we need to play one more clip from the short documentary on sheepdogs that we heard at the beginning. This is the owner talking about training a
2: sheepdog. They're bred for this role. They are already born among the sheep and the goats. They grow up in a herd, develop mutual trust with the owner and after two to three months start their training. In summer or autumn they'll be introduced to a large flock of sheep. We expect them to protect the herd reliably and observe what happens around it. A large part of such protective behavior is instinctive. Just as it takes a unique, well-trained canine
0: to be a sheepdog, it also takes a unique God-trained man with biblical instincts to fight in such a public way for the gospel. In John's case, there are a few ingredients that make him an ideal sheepdog for the flock of God. First, there's the study. John's put more than 10,000 hours into studying God's word. That shaped MacArthur, made him discerning, given him a uniquely sharp spiritual vision. Sinkbile says in his book that a sheepdog has one ear tuned to the voice of the great shepherd. All that study has finally tuned John's ear. Second, there's submission. Sinkbile says the sheepdog is not self-assertive, but only and entirely serves as an extension of the shepherd's heart and directive will. He's an agent of another mind at the willing and eager disposal of the shepherd, doing his bidding and finding great delight in the process. Over five decades, John has placed himself under the Bible's authority. He doesn't shape the message. He submits to it. Third, there's time. When John publicly critiqued Driscoll, he'd been a pastor for nearly 40 years. He was in his 60s. As Sinkbile says, a good sheepdog can afford to take his time confident and assertive, but never aggressive. The experienced sheepdogs are the most effective ones. And finally, there is love. Sinkbile says that despite the frustration caused by the sheep, the dog's tail is always wagging because he's completely captivated by his love for the shepherd. John loves God and he loves God's people. And here's what he says about love in that seminary message, Why I Fight.
1: I have 50 years of loving people who uh, have filled my life with so much love and so much kindness and so much affection that it's just beyond comprehension. And that's Grace Church. And that's the people who hear the word of God and believe it and follow it. I I think it's really a very dangerous thing to walk out of pastoral ministry and think you're going to be a floating pastor and not become wearied with all of the challenges and you've got nowhere to go to be embraced and loved. So while on the one hand you're fighting the enemy and doing it for the sake of the truth and the protection of your own people, on the other hand you are pouring your heart out to a congregation of people who will love you and, and hold you Uh, in their hearts to the very end. And that is what brings
0: endless joy to my heart. There's a great lesson there for every pastor or aspiring under-shepherd. You are called to contend for the truth. But you can't do that effectively unless you hold fast to a local congregation. You pour your heart and soul into them. Only then will you know the flock, love the flock, and be willing to lay your reputation, your relationships, your life down for the sheep. Thanks for listening to season one of the MacArthur Center podcast. Tune in next time to hear how John endured the near death of his wife and daughter and hear how suffering has shaped his preaching ministry. That's next time on The Expositor the life and preaching of John MacArthur. The Expositor is produced with the speed of a greyhound by Corey Williams and the appetite of a pug dog of Jeremy Vuola. Cody Signore, our editor, is like a Saint Bernard who rescues us with his editing talents. Special thanks goes to Phil Johnson, kind of a combination between a Sheepdog and the German Shepherd, and of course our dear friend Tom Hatter, who's such a great guard dog. For more information about the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching, go to macarthurcenter.org, and to learn more about the Master Seminary, go to tms.edu. ATD, out. Woof,
3: woof.